Hello and welcome back. It's been Yaman Rose and myself, Gedalia Gutentag, with Mishpachaz Homefront, a wide-angle view of Israel's biggest conflict in a generation. Hello, Yaman. Hello, Gedalia. I wanted to start talking this morning about how the angle is getting wider, apparently, in Khan Yunus. There's an unprecedented concentration of IDF forces in and around Khan Yunus. This is the final stronghold of Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Not that we've cleaned everything up totally every place else, but Khan Yunus is where Sinwar is hiding. It's where Mohammed Death, the number two in command in Hamas, is hiding. And the IDF is putting tremendous pressure now, both on the ground and below the ground, to control Hamas strongholds, to destroy tunnels system underground. One of the reasons is because if they can capture Khan Yunus, or at least control Khan Yunus, then I wouldn't say we could declare victory yet, but we could certainly say that we've taken control of every major Hamas stronghold in the Gaza Strip. Number two, there's hope that this kind of pressure will give added incentive for Hamas to agree to a hostage return deal, which everyone wants. And number three, it would allow Israel to begin to redistribute their forces and send some people from Gaza up north because once again, the North is still heating up and it looks like uh, that could be a new battlefront that opens up and Israel is going to need reinforcements up there if we're going to be able to effectively uh, deter and even uh, demolish Hezbollah. We'll get to the Northern Front soon, in, metaphorically speaking. I'm slightly cynical about these reports, again, that the IDF is what they're achieving in the Gaza Strip. Undoubtedly, a lot of bravery and a lot of progress, but very grinding progress. And the reason I'm cynical is because we know that Hamas watches the news. They watched, they must have watched yesterday as we all read the reports and heard the reports, drastic reduction in rocketing coming out of Gaza, comparing two months ago and a month ago and a few weeks ago, etc. And obviously, as soon as midnight struck, Hamas didn't turn into a pumpkin. What happened? They released a new volley to welcome the new year in. And we all saw the memes going around in New Year's displays around the world and Hamas lighting up the sky over Tel Aviv once again. So we see again and again, they have, they retained this ability to deploy firepower in a very visible way. Now, not only that, there was also a report yesterday, which, which was absolutely incredible to me. The Galatz, Galitzal, army radio was reported from some senior defense source saying the aim is no longer realistically to deter all rocket fire coming from Gaza, meaning even if IDS war aims are achieved, there will still be rocket fire coming from Gaza. But anyway, did you see that report? The report drew a parallel that says we can't deter a lone wolf going stabbing, so we also cannot deter the equivalent in rocketry terms. We can't deter their ability to fire rockets. To me, that's incredible. Because the comparison, the parallel doesn't hold up. Of course, you can't deter an individual armed with a kitchen knife. But what right. essentially was saying is that you can't stop a group of ter terrorists transporting, aiming and firing missiles and presumably hoping to get away. That takes a degree of sovereignty and of autonomy, which goes to show that they're not no longer really thinking about taking effective control of the Gaza Strip. It's just about reducing and mowing the grass again. That's a worrying sign to me. It's a very worrying sign, and it's something that needs to be uh, dealt with. Again, this is part of, we keep talking about the conceptia, the conception. As long as we have the conception that we can't control the Gaza Strip and we can't go back in there for any extended period of time, then this is going to be something that Israel is going to have to be up against and face. What I will say, though, is that there's almost no chance of 
I don't care whether you're fighting crime or whether you're fighting a war of cutting all of the violence down to zero. I'm sure New York, Chicago would love to say that in 2024, we hope that there are no crimes in the entire city the entire year. That's not going to happen. But what you can do is you can keep it limited and under control. So even last night, for example, when Hamas fired rockets at the witching hour, if you will, they fired about 20 rockets, not 120 like they were a few weeks ago. That's still 20 too many. On the other hand, if we can keep any future rocket fire to a very bare minimum, then that's something the Iron Dome can handle. It's multiple barrages of hundreds or thousands of missiles at any one time, which could be crushing. So while I would love to be able to sit back and go to the beach in Ashkelon or go back north to my favorite spot in Naharia and just relax, it's going to take a while until I can do that or anyone else can do that. And it may not be totally safe in the future, but as long as it's mainly safe, then I think we've done a good job. Let's move indeed talk about Naharia on the north over here. I mentioned a few weeks ago that we were all getting very familiar. We could all distinguish between Asajaya from Khan Yunis, just based on familiarity with the battlefields in Gaza. We now know we're going to need to know to be able to distinguish between our Baalbek and our Bekaa Valley, because that is where things are heating up. And we know there's been no far more firing going on over the northern border than there has barring the witching hour last night, barring that out of Gaza. And so focus is, is shifting to that. And one report that I've seen is both interesting and concerning because the idea that Hezbollah in Lebanon has a network of strategic warfighting tunnels that is said to presume to be more sophisticated than that with Hamas has. Now we know how impressive Hamas's underground facilities have been. We've spoken about Gaza shall matter. That's not a trademark. It's just tunnels being used. What's happening there in the north, busy, there's open source intelligence piecing it together. It is very, very worrying because the Hezbollah tunnels are strategic in that they run across the country and knit together three strongholds that Hezbollah is their power bases. One of them is on the border with Israel. That's the area, right? The other one is the northwest of the country around Beirut, which is a stronghold there. And the third one is in the northeast of the country next to Syria, the Bekaa Valley, which that particular area gives access to Syria and then obviously to a powerful ally, a state actor who is an ally of Hezbollah. And the Alma Center, which is, I hadn't been aware of as a group that deals with this sort of think tank with this ex-security types, focusing exclusively on the northern border of Israel. And even piecing together from open source intelligence, they show that this is what they presumed to be the network of tunnels, hundreds of kilometers long, larger than this Hamas thing, more advanced. And they have the strategic function of being able to put supplies out of harm's way from the air with Israel. But you know, and that is something we're going to get to know about presumably in the next few weeks or months. And I would say, would you not, that the existence of such a thing, when we know how bad and how lethal tunnels can be in the Gaza context, that is a very worrying thing. What are your thoughts on that, Benyamin? That's the major reason why the IDF and also the political echelon is putting such emphasis right now on physically moving Hezbollah forces from the south further north. The further north they are, the less likely they are to be able to use these tunnel systems that they've developed. That could also potentially give us the opportunity to make another, I wouldn't say invasion of South Lebanon, but to make forays here and there in order to destroy that infrastructure. That's something that's going to have to be done. That also will explain why Israel has ramped up their attacks on Syria recently, because Syria is the pipeline from Iran 
in which all of the weapons end up getting in Hezbollah's hands. So that's a two-pronged approach that Israel has to now go ahead and take at this point. Number one, to clean up whatever infrastructure there is, at least in the south of Lebanon. And number two, to make sure that there's no further arms shipments or as few as possible from Syria. You know, but I think looking at that situation in southern Lebanon with the existence of these tunnels, on this podcast, we've repeatedly drawn historic analogies and parallels. And I think the reason is because that's obviously a framework through which we can better understand things. But it's also these things on their own merit have a lot to say, these parallels. One of them is, I think what we're seeing now, if you look at the big picture of Israel's strategic situation, you've got versus Gaza, you've got Hezbollah in the north, it's tunnels that are the problem. Because tunnels are the enemy's wonder weapon. In fact, Hezbollah had been digging for decades. They had initially help from North Korea because North Korea had expertise in digging fortifications into the mountainous areas. And so that's where they initially developed engineering capacity and then have developed their own domestic industry. And as, as is to be expected, the firms that are busy, these are literally companies that are busy doing state-level projects for the government in Lebanon are busy literally doing civil engineering projects for attack tunnels. The same companies in this report from Armour was actually interesting in highlighting one of them. But it seems to me, Benjamin, that tunnels are, as it were, the wonder weapon of the anti-Israel axis because it enables them to neutralize Israeli air power. Israeli air power being the one element that they just don't have a really an answer to, except for the tunnels, because what these tunnels do, they enable them to move massive amounts of forces to keep these forces safe and out of the reach of the IDF. And that is where there's a talk about historic parallel. That is, I think what we're in, in this situation is comparable to that of the Yom Kippur War, in which you had the game-changing weapon then deployed by the Egyptians and the Syrians were Syrian anti-tank and anti-aircraft missiles, which especially the anti-aircraft missiles denied the Israeli Air Force ability to really operate and to be effective in the battle. And that was seen as a game-changing weapon. It took nine years until the 1982 Israeli Air Force raid on the, indeed the, I think it was the Bakar Valley, in which the IDF had developed technologies for electronic countermeasures to protect the planes from these uh, surface-to-air missiles. And these technologies were actually still shrouded in secrecy to this day over four decades later, because they did indeed allow the Israeli Air Force once again to gain the initiative. I think that is a good parallel to where we're at, because what has happened, Benjamin, correct me if I'm wrong, is that these tunnels have existed act as an equalizer in which the only way to, for them to be destroyed is not really from the air is to send in the infantry to grind away face-to-face -face battles with a terror army. And that is a very powerful weapon on the side of the Iranian axis. We're yet waiting for an anti-tunnel weapon which can once again swing the initiative and the advantage back in the direction of the IDF. And we need that. We need an investor. We need Seattle to try. We need a breakthrough like the Iron Dome. We need a breakthrough in some way in which we can neutralize these tunnels from wherever it is, from the air, from the ground, and not have to put it into infantry. And then these weapons will be one less weapon in the arsenal of the Iranian axis. That's where a historic parallel, which to me has a lot of validity, Benjamin. I was just out that I think there's an in-between approach. If air raids are not as successful, and we certainly, we've lost uh, a lot of men, about 170 or more men so far. If we want to keep our troops safe, and if we want to make sure we use the most effective weaponry, we should be using the Moab bunker busters much more. I think that's a perfectly in-between approach that we could use. The Moab stands for, well, some people call it the mother of all bombs. So that's uh, one way of saying Moab, but it's called a massive ordnance air blast weapon. 
And this is a weapon that was developed about 20 years ago. I'm looking up some research on it right now as we speak. It's conventional explosive weapon, it says. It results in an initial fireball from the explosion and a subsequent pressure wave caused by the creation of large quantities of gases at high temperatures. What it does is it detonates above the ground and then the destructive energy dissipates over the widest possible surface rather than being absorbed by the ground impact or reflected upwards. So it can be used to both demolish surface targets and as an anti-personnel weapon. According to Just Security, they say that the Mullah presents no unique issues or challenges for international humanitarian law. As a guided weapon, it does not run afoul of the prohibition on weapons that are by nature incapable of being directed to lawful military objectives. So in other words, nobody can say that it's indiscriminate bombing. Nor is the Moab, just security says, a weapon that causes superfluous injury or unnecessary suffering. But what it allows an army who uses it to do is to clear a area, especially in a populated area, and cause destruction with actually killing as few people as possible. So I think that would be the best method. I think the U.S. needs to supply more of them to Israel, and that'll keep our troops safe, and it could end this war quickly. I think, if my memory serves me correctly, Israel has a problem deploying these things simply because some of these massive things are deployed by B-52 bombers, and the U.S. has not, for the, the last 75 years, seen fit to give these ancient strategic bombers to Israel. It has to be something that fits on a F-15 or an F-35. And they're capable of carrying maximum, I think, 2,000 pound bomb. I'm not an expert on these things, but I think there's a reason. It's not just reluctance to supply to Israel. Israel simply doesn't have the deployment systems for them. There is one particular aircraft that can deliver the Moab bomb. It's a MC-130 aircraft. And in fact, I've spoken to some military people who say that the C-130 transport plane can be reconfigured uh, to carry that bomb. So it's something that Israel needs to consider going forward, especially if they want to avoid uh, casualties to their troops on the ground. Perhaps we'll have on the show an expert another time. But I think some concluding thoughts are in order. One of them is that we're at the three-month mark. I think it will be towards the end of the week on Shabbos of October the 7th. There was a meme going around last night, which said that, that it's the new year for most of the new year, secular new year. But for Israel, it's October the 85th, which was a very powerful way of saying that time as we normally measure it has simply stopped since Simchus Torah. It has reset the clock and we're now on a totally different time. We're measuring time. We simply are looking back how long we're in the middle of war. It's an international, it's a war that is affecting the Jewish people. Obviously, I'm Israel is all affected by that. So we're in so many ways on October the, you know, the 85th. And one thing I would say, Benjamin, is that Klal Israel has responded in, in their normal amazing way and some, sometimes interesting ways in which there is a trend of people coming here from, from America, from overseas. And once upon a time, you would have gone on COVID tour to the north of Israel. You would have gone to Barilai and to, and to Miran, different things. But, but there has been a new pilgrimage route become popular amongst the Frum Jews, which is to go down to the Gaza border region and to give Chizuk and to get Chizuk. It's an unfortunate new route and it's sad, but there we are. And that's the reality of Am Yisrael. And you can look at it in all different ways, but for me, it's a special thing that, that Klal Yisrael wants to be a Klal, wants to be a, a nation together. They want to, and even if you're sitting in Brooklyn, Lakewood, you want to be part of this uh, battle to help, to fight this crucial, to fight this crucial war in so many ways. And so, if you're down, you know, if you're down in the next week or two down, you know, down by the Gaza border region, then you might indeed see a tour bus in which there are some distinct foreigners 
turn up and start dancing with soldiers, then you know that you've encountered one of these new groups here on the new route to pilgrimage route, route along the Gaza border region. But Yaman, any final thoughts? I've seen a lot more tour buses in Yerushalayim over the past couple of weeks. Before we went on this morning, I mentioned that it appears to me that things are returning to normal in Yerushalayim, at least as much as possible. There's a lot more traffic on the street. There are a lot more tour buses riding around. There's also more shoppers in the shuk and more people in the restaurants. So these are all good signs. Uh, no, the following is a good sign, but the government decided last night that uh, there's no reason to extend the discount they've given on gasoline taxes for the last few months. And uh, the price of gas went up about 28 agarot last night. In Israel, the price of gas changes once a month on the first of every month. So counterintuitive sense, that's a good sign if, uh, number one, the, uh, Government needs to raise the money in taxes. But number two, if they feel that the people can afford it and they don't need the discount anymore, I mean, I might argue with that because especially uh, considering gas is about $8 a gallon uh, here in Israel, but it's probably a good sign if the government is getting back to the normal business of raising taxes, uh, which is something they do a very good job at, then I would say that we're little by little hoping to get back to normal. I agree with you. I think we've said this before and this, this will conclude that there is a comforting familiarity to the fact that prices in Israel only ever seem to go up. And so we're back, as you say, we're back to normal. Hashem, we should be back total normal with full victory over these wild animals we face and peace for all of us. Benjamin, to wish you and listeners everywhere a good day and a good week.